0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with both Iran and the United States saying they don't want a wider war in the Middle East, just as President Biden is about to retaliate against Iranian proxies and possibly Iran itself for a drone attack that killed three American soldiers and wounded 34. Joining us is Gregory Brew an analyst with the Eurasia Group's Energy, Climate and Resources team, focusing on the geopolitics of oil and gas. In addition, he serves as the Eurasia Group's Country Analyst for Iran, an historian of modern Iran, oil and U.S. foreign policy. He's the author of The Struggle for Iran, Oil Autocracy and the Cold War 1951-1954, to 1954, and Petroleum and Progress in Iran, Oil Development and the Cold War. And he has an article at Time magazine, The U.S. Has No End Game in Yemen. Then we'll examine the 1944 lesson from history when FDR eased out his vice president, Henry Wallace, to replace him on the ticket with Harry Truman in the context of whether Biden should ditch Kamala Harris at the Democratic Party convention in Chicago in August. Joining us is Ben Steele. Director of International Economics and the historian in residence at the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as the author, most recently, of The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. His latest book is The World That Wasn't, Henry Wallace and the Fate of the American Century, and we will discuss his article at time, Biden owes the country a new vice president. Then finally, we will look into today's hearing that had the big tech CEOs of MetaX Snap, TikTok and Discord grilled by senators with bipartisan outrage. We'll also assess the impact of a Delaware judge voiding a $56 billion pay package for Tesla CEO Elon Musk and speak with Bartlett Naylor the Financial Policy Advocate for Public Citizens Congress Watch Division, and the Principal of Capital Strategies Consulting, Inc., which works with progressive organizations attempting to reform public policies where corporations play a key role. Formerly, he served as the Chief of Investigations for the United States Senate Banking Committee, where he led probes of the savings and loan crisis, corporate takeovers, and insider trading. And also joining us is Richard Anthony, a Big Tech Accountability Advocate with Public Citizen. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep background briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free, without paywalls or constant fundraising, as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute you can make a tax deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation the public truth media foundation at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org/donate and thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of american democracy itself will be decided we are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die we barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Gregory Brew, an analyst at the Eurasia Group's Energy, Climate and Resources team, focusing on the geopolitics of oil and gas. In addition, he serves as the Eurasia Group's Country Analyst for Iran, an historian of modern Iran, oil and U.S. foreign policy. He's the author of The Struggle for Iran, Oil Autocracy in the Cold War, 1951 to 1954, and Petroleum and Progress in Iran, oil development, and the Cold War. And he has an article at Time magazine, The U.S. Has No End Game in Yemen. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gregory Brew.
1: Thanks, Ian, for having me on.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Gregory. And the one thing that the United States and Iran now have in common, that both uh, governments, Biden and uh, the Iranian government, are saying that they don't want war. So, how confident are you that there won't be a war?
1: Well, it's interesting that you note that, because it's it's really been there since the beginning of the crisis, uh, you know, since the Hamas attack on October 7th, um, the Hamas attack on Israel. Iran's government has stuck to a fairly consistent line, which is, we don't want war with the United States, but we can't control our allies, and this includes the Houthis in Yemen, and various militias in Iraq and Syria. We can't control other groups for responding to Israel's war in Gaza. That's been Iran's rhetorical line. The problem with that is that these groups, in many cases, uh, are, you know, they respond to directives from Iran. They receive considerable funding and support from Iran. In many cases, they act as tools for Iran's foreign policy. They have a degree of autonomy and they have a degree of independence and they have interests of their own. Uh, but groups like Iraqi militias, the groups that were responsible for the attack on the U.S. uh, base in Jordan over the weekend, uh, they do what they do with Iran's support. So Iran saying, like, we don't want war, yes, (laughs) they've been sticking to that position. Uh, But this latest attack has put a tremendous amount of pressure on that position. And Iran has had to sort of thread this needle between applying pressure on the U.S. and Israel and, and maintaining this policy of supporting these groups without things escalating to the point of a, of a direct confrontation between Iran, the U.S., and Israel. So what we're seeing right now is you know what a particularly high point of tension as both Iran and the United States respond to these various provocations, these various attacks going back and forth without stepping over the line into all-out war.
0: Well, the president did say, along with saying that they're preparing to strike. And what I understand from what the Pentagon is saying, that they're going to take their time And it may happen over a period of time, and it will be robust, I think is the word that they used. But President Biden, in the same exchange with the press, uh, said that I do hold them, meaning Iran, I do hold them responsible in that they're supplying the weapons to the people who did it. So do you consider that a pretty strong case? I mean,
1: Yeah, no, I mean, if you look at the U.S. side, it's something very similar. I mean, from the beginning of the crisis, when there have been attacks on U.S. bases, and there's been over 150, you know, this is the first attack on a U.S. base that's resulted in U.S. casualties. But these groups, these Iran-backed groups, have been attacking U.S. forces for months now. And, of course, the Houthis in Yemen have been launching attacks on ships, and the Houthis are Iranian allies. And very often the U.S. rhetorical line has been Iran supports these groups, Iran has responsibility. And then, you know, when pushed a little bit, they'll say, well, we don't actually know if Iran was directly responsible. So they've always tried to sort of maintain this middle ground because, as I mentioned, the US is also very conscious of escalating. The US doesn't want to get caught up in a war with Iran or a more, you know, a deeper, more involved regional military intervention. President Biden's words, for me, stuck pretty close to that line. You know, he emphasized that Iran had a role to play, but at the same time, he aligned with other spokespeople for the administration by saying, we don't wanna fight Iran directly. What President Biden and the rest of the administration have to do, however, is they have to respond to this attack, given the severity, given the fact that U.S. lives have been lost. There is an immediate expectation, both from you know, other actors in the region, both on the United States as a regional power, as a military power, there's an expectation that the U.S. will take action to restore deterrence. But there's also a domestic political expectation. You know, Biden can't let this stand. He can't just let this event happen without showing some kind of response. So we haven't seen the response yet. The administration says it's going to be, you know, it's going to be careful. It's going to be tiered. It's going to come over the course of several days, perhaps even longer. uh, And it will, you know, it will give us a sense of the escalatory risks that stem from this, this event, whether the U.S. targets the Iraqi group's directly responsible, or whether it decides to step things up and go after Iranian assets more directly.
0: Well, I don't think anything will happen till after Friday when the president will be at Dover Air Force Base to speak to the families and preside over the dignified transfer of their remains.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, it's, it's been interesting that there hasn't been a response yet. I think many of us in the analytical community was ex- were expecting a U.S. response in the, coming, in the days following the attack. And the response hasn't come yet. It's likely to come at night, uh, local time. So it's possible we could see something occur uh, in the next 12 to 18 hours. Uh, the U.S. is taking its time. I imagine it's weighing its options. It's picking its targets. It's getting its assets into place. Uh, I agree with you that it, it, you know, it may very well wait until after uh, after Friday. Um, But the longer Biden waits, the more he invites criticism from uh, both opponents. Uh, Donald Trump has been quite critical. But also, you know, there are critics within the the Democrats as well who are calling for more more direct, uh, more aggressive uh, action against the groups responsible. So I I do think we'll see a U.S. response in the not too distant future, perhaps as early as uh, later today.
0: Well, even if, you know, Biden got the Ayatollah Khomeini to surrender, <laughs> the Republicans would criticize him. I mean, that's what they do, right? They're, you know, impeaching people. And so do you think he really right. cares that much about uh, their criticism? It's totally
1: no, it's, expected and totally consistent. It's a good consistent. point. Yeah. It's a right. good point. And whatever course, whatever course the administration decides to take, there are going to be critics uh, and there's going to be criticism Um, And I imagine the administration is conscious of that. Uh, They're conscious of meeting the domestic pressure. But I think they're equally and perhaps even more conscious of taking action that could worsen the regional situation and increase the risk of escalation, increase the risk that there are more and perhaps even more violent attacks against U.S. forces. So they're they're weighing these factors very carefully.
0: Sure. Well, Atib uh, Hezbollah, the Hezbollah Brigade in uh, Iraq, have stood down and they're apparently the ones that the Pentagon think were behind this drone strike that killed the three U.S. servicemen and wounded 34 others. The obvious way to stop these attacks would be for a ceasefire in Gaza. I mean, at the end of the day, isn't that what it's all about? I imagine as much as Iran says we're not responsible for the actions of our proxies, they're nevertheless making it clear that what's happening in Gaza is unacceptable for the Islamic world, right?
1: Sure, sure. I mean, the beginning of the war in Gaza was the pretext for these attacks uh, to begin again. I think some important context. I mean, there had been quite frequent attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria uh, as early as, you know, early last year, uh, going back into 2022 and 2021. So attacks on U.S. forces in these areas by these Iran-backed militias you know, it's, it's not a new feature. Uh, these, late, these latest attacks have been happening with greater frequency, uh, but attacks like this have been going on for some time. Now, the attacks came to a halt last year during a period where the United States and Iran were engaged in a kind of informal diplomacy, right? There was this there was discussion of an understanding between the U.S. and Iran, where Iran called off its groups, its, its militias in Iraq and Syria, maybe reduced the rate at which it enriched uranium. In response, the United States freed up some frozen funds, made some progress on diplomacy. That was kind of in the works before October 7th. All of that, you know, is off the table as a result of the regional crisis. Now, if a ceasefire is called in Gaza, will these groups stop attacking US forces? I think there's an expectation that the attacks will halt if a ceasefire in Gaza is called. I wouldn't expect that halt to last forever. And it goes to the other motivations that these groups have, right? Khattab, Hezbollah, and the other militias, the other Iran-backed groups in Iraq, they want the United States to leave. They want to force a U.S. withdrawal from Iraq. And they think attacks like this, you know, a consistent level of hostility and aggression towards the U.S. presence without breaking into all-out war, they think this strategy will work. That in time, the U.S. will be forced to leave. That doesn't change in the event of a ceasefire in Gaza. So I wouldn't expect attacks like these to come to a complete halt, even if we start to see progress uh, towards, you know, a resolution uh, to the war in Gaza.
0: But isn't that the stated aim of the Islamic Republic's theocracy, led by Ayatollah Khamenei? They've always said, you know, every Friday they have the Friday prayers, death to America, death to America, the great Satan— That refrain continues, and they've made it clear that they want to get the United States out of the Middle East, and they want Palestine to replace Israel, and that they're a part of the axis of resistance, and they're allied with Russia and China against the U.S.-dominated world order. There's no secret about that.
1: No, not at all. I mean, as you say, these are all stated aims of the Islamic Republic and its allies in Iraq. I I think... When you, when you break things down a little bit more and you look at the, the, the local context, I mean, recently in Iraq, there's been quite a lot of discussion between the Iraqi government uh, led by Prime Minister Sudani, uh, various uh, Iran-linked groups, and the United States. There's been actually quite a lot of discussion about the future of the U.S. presence in Iraq. Uh, and there has been pressure from the militias for years to get the U.S. to leave. And obviously Iran wants that, but these militias in Iraq want it even more. Uh, so, yes, it does speak to the, the broader strategy or the broader ideological aims of the Islamic Republic. Uh, but there is also potentially uh, an opportunity here for Iran, Iran's allies in Iraq to accomplish their more immediate and specific goal of getting the U.S. to perhaps not withdraw entirely from Iraq, but certainly to reduce their presence there. That is part of why these attacks have been taking place, and that motivation isn't going to disappear. Uh, in the event of a ceasefire in Gaza. So there are additional factors to uh, to bear in mind here beyond what Iran is trying to do on a regional basis uh, and, more specifically, what its allies are trying to do in their own backyards.
0: So if you take them at their word, both Iran and the so-called proxies, and proxies may not entirely be the right description because, for example, Iran did not know anything about the October seventh Hamas attack. They weren't behind it, they didn't organise it, they didn't plan it, and it was it was kept secret from them by Hamas. That much, I think our intelligence services agree on, don't they?
1: I think so. I think there's there is certainly uh, a growing consensus that Iran was surprised by the attack and by the crisis that the attack created. Uh, it's hard to know exactly how much Iran knows about what its proxies are getting up to or what its allies are getting up to. You know, we don't have tremendous amount of visibility on the inner workings of the Islamic Republic, and we have even less on how the uh, IRGC Quds Force um, operates amongst its various regional allies. But I do think it's, it's growing increasingly clear that Iran did not anticipate a crisis around Hamas and Israel specifically, and has been, as with the United States, has been reacting to events and managing them in such a way that it can advance its own goals while also avoiding a more damaging region-wide war. I think that's been, that's been fairly clear. To your point about you know, how we think of these groups, like the Iraqi militias or the Houthis in Yemen or Hamas or Hezbollah, it's undeniable that Iran operates influence over these groups, right? I mean, we saw it with the Qatab-Hezbollah statement. Of yesterday, I think there was very, very clear signs that Iran exerted a certain degree of influence to get the group to stand down, even if it's only temporary. Uh, but at the same time, I think it needs to be acknowledged that these groups do have interests, do have agendas, and do benefit in specific ways from their activities, even if those activities fit within a larger, broader, uh, Iran-led strategy. It needs to be pointed out, Iran chooses these groups— in some cases creates them uh, out in regional contexts where Iran sees opportunities or sees uh, the, the possibility of building up allies. Iran doesn't have other allies, right? Iran doesn't have other states that it can lean on for security cooperation or for support. There's Russia, sure, but Russia is still largely a partner of convenience, a transactional partner. When it comes to managing Middle East politics or its position in the broader Middle East, Iran really just has these groups. It has Hezbollah in Lebanon, but it doesn't have a strong friend or a strong ally that it can lean on in the way that, say, Israel can very often lean on support from the United States to, uh, to manage its own security position.
0: Well, just in the last couple of minutes, isn't that the source of both Iran's intentions and, in effect, the United States' problem, that we're totally tied to Netanyahu, even if Biden doesn't like him. He can't get out from under it. And he's losing young Democrats angry at him and may lose the state of Michigan because of its Arab American constituency of voters. So Iran's sort of onto a good thing, aren't they, from their point of view, to tie America to Israel, just as Putin is tying America to Ukraine.
1: I think Iran sees aspects of this crisis working towards its benefit. No, no question about that. I mean, the original, the inciting incident, the Hamas attack on Israel, even if Iran didn't fully anticipate the attack, uh, works to Iran's benefit in the sense that it just, you know, it has Israel bogged down in a domestic security crisis. It puts even more pressure on Israel's domestic political scene. Uh, it very likely delays and undermines a potential Israel Saudi normalization deal the grand bargain that was discussed uh, at some length before the crisis began you know that that alignment between Israel and Saudi Arabia would very likely be one aimed at containing or addressing iran so naturally iran benefits from having that alignment delayed or undermined that being said i mean there are aspects of this crisis that iran has had to manage uh, to protect itself And in that sense, the situation between Israel and Hezbollah and Israel's northern border is one that I think gives Iran quite a bit of concern. Hezbollah is Iran's most important ally. It's an ally more than a proxy. It's a partner, really. Uh, And it's also Iran's chief source of deterrence against Israel, right? The Hezbollah uh, arsenal of rockets that are aimed at Israel give Iran a certain degree of deterrence against the potential for Israel to strike in Iran directly were israel to start a war with hezbollah or if it were a war to start on israel's northern border that would likely drag iran and hezbollah into a very damaging very costly uh, direct confrontation with israel and like very likely with the united states as you mentioned the u.s is tied quite closely to israel so iran has been managing the opportunities and the risks and costs associated with this crisis i do think in general it has, it has benefited from aspects of the crisis. But I think at this point, Iran is still trying to avoid a damaging confrontation and is trying to come out of the crisis with, you know, more, more chips on its side, let us say, than it had on October 6th.
0: Well, Gregory Brew, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: And again I've been speaking with Gregory Brew who's an analyst at the Eurasia Group's Energy, Climate and Resources team focusing on the geopolitics of oil and gas In addition he serves as Eurasia Group's country analyst for Iran an historian of modern Iran oil and US foreign policy He's the author of The Struggle for Iran Oil Autocracy in the Cold War 1951 to 1954 and Petroleum and Progress in Iran Oil Development and the Cold War And he has an article in Time Magazine The US Has No End Game in Yemen. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the 1944 lesson from history when FDR eased out his Vice President Henry Wallace to replace him with Harry Truman and whether or not Biden should ditch Kamala Harris at the Democratic Party Convention in Chicago in August. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ben Steele, the Director of International Economics and a historian in residence at the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as the author most recently of The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. His latest book is The World That Wasn't, Henry Wallace and the Fate of the American Century. And he has an article at Time, Biden Owes the Country a New Vice President. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ben Steele.
2: Thank you for having me again, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Ben. And you have uh, exposed yourself to what's called the (laughs) um, (laughs) K-Hive, where the the fans of Kamala Harris uh, strike out at anybody. Uh, It's based upon uh, the Bay Hive from Beyoncé. Have they gone after you yet for making such an outrageous um, (laughs) statement?
2: yeah sure sure there's there's been some some natural uh criticism you know that's that's to be expected under these circumstances um but uh most of my inbox has been um uh, filled with um supportive messages i think there there is a widespread impression in the country now um that um given um joe biden's age that The choice of vice president this time around is extremely important because the vice president is going to be a president-in-waiting, and I don't think Kamala Harris has ever really made the case um, that she's up to that particular role.
0: But isn't she constrained by the fact that she's vice president, and the job of a vice president is to be invisible?
2: Um, well, n- not really, as as you as you you, you know from um, my my reference to um, 1944, when President Roosevelt uh, nudged Henry Wallace off the ticket in favor of uh, Harry Truman, um, uh, uh, Henry Wallace played a very significant role. Um, In um, FDR's third term as vice president, he was put in charge of the so-called Bureau of Economic Warfare. So Wallace had a major role in war procurement. Um, uh, At the um, end of the day, uh, FDR was not particularly pleased with Wallace's performance and not only removed him from that position, but abolished the BEW and created uh, a a new acronym and put that agency under the um, command of uh, Leo Crowley. In the case of Kamala Harris, um, Joe Biden made um, her his uh, point woman on the migration issue. Uh, And I think it's fair to say that um, she's not been um, uh, able to um, communicate administration strategy effectively to the um, uh, public. Um, She's certainly not in any way managed to diffuse this issue as a major political one. I would argue that it's Biden's major albatross going into the campaign. And so she's had her um, opportunity um, to claim an issue as her, her own and to connect with the American public. And uh, I think it's fair to say she hasn't been uh, successful.
0: Well, the person who's uh, echoing what you're saying is Nikki Haley, who, of course, is still running for the Republican presidential nominee and, and is now, unlike all of the candidates, except for Chris Christie and Aisha Hudson, is actually criticising the front-runner Donald Trump, and she's arguing that if you vote for Donald Trump, then that's a gift to Joe Biden, and you'll end up with a Biden presidency and Kamala Harris as president. So she's using Kamala Harris as a, as a warning to you know, skittish Republican voters to vote for her. So sure. there's no question that it's out there in the zeitgeist, right?
2: Yeah, but well, the, the fact that it's in Nikki Haley's political advantage to make such an argument doesn't mean that in, it's, um, it's, it's not a valid one. Um, and, and I expect um, those types of uh, arguments um, to be augmented um, uh, throughout um, the campaign uh, from within the um, Republican Party. Um, and the reason is because it's a compelling argument.
0: But why do you think it is a compelling argument, Ben? Why do you think Kamala Harris's poll numbers are so low? What is it that people don't like about her?
2: Well, she's never identif- She's never managed to man- manufacture for herself a coherent political identity. Um, she emerged from um, uh, California state politics as a, with a reputation as a, as a prosecutor. Um, But she was never able to translate that into um, uh, any sort of domestic political um, uh, presence once she got into the um, uh, Senate. Um, She's acknowledged, for example, that she was not a leader in terms of bill creation, etc. When she um, ran for president, Um, In 2020, she had an opportunity to define herself on major issues related to domestic and foreign policy, and I think failed once again. Uh, But she had a golden opportunity as vice president to um, uh, claim certain issues as her own. Um, where she could connect with the American um, public and convince them that um, that she she had answers and that she had the leadership um, capacity uh, to make actual progress. Um, and I think it's fair to say now that she's 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 not she's not achieved that aim. Um, and given Joe Biden's aim uh, age, I, I I do believe he owes it to the country to find a more compelling president in waiting. And that, as you know um, from my piece uh, was the the major issue in the 1944 campaign that um, uh, President Roosevelt was clearly deteriorating physically. And so his choice of vice president um, uh, had you know much more significance than it had in 1940. And so DNC leaders rightly convinced him um, that he he needed to look elsewhere for a more compelling candidate. And I think he achieved that in the end in tapping Harry Truman.
0: So let's talk about your article at Time, Biden Knows the Country New Vice President, in the context of what happened in 1944. So you're suggesting that Biden should open up the Democratic Convention this year to other candidates. And in the case of Roosevelt, he basically nominated four candidates, right, including his own vice president. So how would Biden proceed to model what FDR did?
2: Well, I I want to be clear about it. I'm not suggesting that um, Biden should adopt FDR's strategy. In fact, I was quite critical in my book of how FDR handled Um, The uh, selection of vice president in 1944. Um, This would have been much more neat and simple had President Roosevelt simply said to Henry Wallace, I'm sorry, Henry, uh, but you're not going to be on the ticket this time around um instead he kept telling him um falsely that um, he wanted him to remain on the ticket but that if he did he henry wallace did decide to to fight to remain in the job he was going to lose um and um the uh the fight at the convention was a was a bitter one it was a fraught one it was a chaotic one um and it, it it could have gone in um in a different direction so i'm not suggesting that strategy to to biden i would rather him assert his um uh, authority as the president and the top of the um, democratic um ticket in 2024 and uh to tell kamala harris he's going in a different direction and choose somebody who would be as i said a more compelling President-in-waiting.
0: Well, he chose her in part, I think, because she's both an African-American woman and a woman of color uh, with the Indian heritage as well. And that, I imagine, is helpful in getting out the, both the women's vote and the African-American women's vote in particular, which is one of the most reliable votes that the Democrats have. So, wouldn't there be a backlash? I mean, what would he gain, and as opposed to what would he lose?
2: Well, you yourself were um, explaining the argument that Nikki Haley was was making, and that the Republican Party is going to um, uh, echo um, that Kamala Harris is not popular uh, in the country at wide. Um, her poll numbers as vice president um, are at the lo- the lowest level. Uh, since this polling began in um, 1989 and whereas I'm I'm not suggesting that she is going to lose Biden many votes to Donald Trump. I do believe that she is going to demotivate um, uh, um, voters to to get out and and back the ticket because to the extent that voters um, uh, um, may support, Joe Biden weekly, the fact that they um, may accept the Republican argument that um, there's a significant probability that Joe Biden won't um, survive his full term, um, that they don't really want Kamala Harris to be president. Um, And that's a problem if, if they stay home. Um, That will be a a major electoral liability for Joe Biden. I would argue that that's that's precisely where we were in um, uh, 2016 when Hillary Clinton voters um, supporters um, uh, were much less energized than Trump supporters. Um, and I, th- I, I think this issue of demotivation um, does have to be um, uh, addressed. And I would emphasize that there are there are plenty of very strong um, uh, uh, women. Um, uh, and African-Americans in government and outside of government. Now, that would make very compelling vice presidents. I deliberately didn't mention um, alternatives in my timepiece because I wasn't looking to uh, focus the spotlight on anybody in particular. I, I simply wanted to highlight the failings of the current vice president. But just looking within the um, uh, cabinet, uh, Gina Gina Ray, uh, Raimondo, the uh, Commerce Secretary, um, has clearly shown herself to be um, an extremely uh, uh, effective um, uh, politician and policymaker. And I think she, for example, would make a compelling president in waiting.
0: Yes, and of course, having a Whitmer... Michigan would would sure. also help, and she'd also help with the state of Michigan that's now disenchanted because it has a has a large Arab American constituency. But the premise, though Ben, seems to be based on the idea that there's a you know smoke filled room of Democratic kingmakers who can make these kind of decisions, and the Democrats haven't had a convention based election since 1968. When yeah. when Lyndon Johnson opted against re-election and delegates nominated Vice President Hubert Humphrey, even though he'd not won a single state primary, yeah. So how do you address that?
2: Well, I, again, Ian, I'm not advocating the um, uh, smoke-filled room process. I'm, I'm by no stretch of the imagination am I saying we should go back to 1944 and do it the way the DNC leaders and President Roosevelt did it. Uh, I believe that. Um, uh process was was um, uh, fraught and risky um, and contentious and unnecessary. Again, FDR could have asserted his um, uh, leadership authority by by naming Harry Truman or somebody else to run on the ticket. And that's what I'd like to see now. I would like to see Joe Biden uh, assert his um, uh, authority um uh assert his judgment and put somebody else on the ticket i i, I don't want this done in smoke filled rooms and i don't want it done in the form of an open convention although i would argue that that would be better all, all else um uh equal um in in terms of producing once again a more compelling president in waiting on the ticket.
0: So let's talk about the historical analogy then, and particularly in your new book, The World That Wasn't, Henry Wallace and the Fate of the American Century. A lot of uh, our listeners probably have seen the Oliver Stone series Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of the 2012 documentary series, The Untold History of the United States, that sort of suggested that the anti-communist hawks who later came into ascendancy particularly in the, uh, in the late 40s, early 50s, were behind this kind of coup against Wallace because they th- thought he was too soft on the communists and that history would have been very different had Wallace become the successor to FDR instead of uh, Harry Truman. So you, you've looked into the Soviet archives as well as the FBI archives. What, what have you found that would explode that myth?
2: Well, Wallace was extremely close to the um, uh, Soviets. Not only was he making speech after speech um, praising uh, Soviet economic democracy and blaming deteriorating relations between Washington and Moscow on Washington, um, but um, he actually uh, had Stalin um, edit his most important Presidential election speech in 1948 when he ran be, uh, against Truman as the Progressive Party um, uh, candidate. Um, you know, this uh, nobody's ever been prosecuted in the United States under the 1799 Logan Act, but this was the clearest case of a violation that um, uh, I've ever seen. Um, uh, so, what what do we know um, uh, about? Um, how the the post-war world would have developed had Wallace um, become president on FDR's death in April of 1945. Well, there there would have been um, uh, no policy of containment. There would have been no Marshall Plan. Um, There would have been um, uh, uh, no European Union, no West Germany, um, uh, policy would have proceeded on a very different basis. Now, would this have produced um, peace? Absolutely positively not. And we know that from the um, uh, Soviet archives, uh, Stalin was absolutely determined to expand his borders and geopolitical um, influence both in Europe and um, Asia. So I argue in the book that had Wallace become president, There would certainly still have been a Cold War, uh, but it's one in which the United States would have started in 1948 when Wallace certainly would have lost um, uh, the election. Um, uh, The United States would have started at an enormous geostrategic disadvantage with um, uh, Stalin having expanded Soviet influence into Hokkaido, into the entire Korean Peninsula, into um, uh, Eastern Turkey, the Turkish Straits, um, into Northern Iran, into Greece, and into Western uh, Germany. Um, And so in that regard, I completely disagree with um, Oliver Stone. Where he and I are in complete agreement, um, uh, however, is that um, uh, people really do matter. We are not just um, floating around um, being pushed willy-nilly by historical um, forces, a Wallace presidency would have been extremely consequential. Um, and the fact that um, we had Harry Truman as president rather than Henry Wallace very much sh- shaped the world in which we live in today for better or for worse. And I, I would um, argue certainly for better.
0: But others might argue that we would have become more of a social democracy under Wallace, and we wouldn't have had the military-industrial complex be so dominant. I mean, most of our, at least over half of... All of the discretionary spending goes to the Pentagon. Now it's yeah. over a trillion dollars. Yeah, this uh, is com-
2: and, this and- this is completely false. Um, and um, who? What authority would I invoke to argue that it's completely false? Henry Wallace himself, um, who in 1950, um, as you may know entirely recanted uh, on these um, uh, views. Um, When the um, Soviet-backed North Korean invasion of the the South got underway, um, uh, Wallace um, uh, urged the United States to um, build up um, its military capacity rapidly uh, to expand uh, spending. Um, not to give up its uh, atomic weapons as he had um, previously advocated. So Henry Wallace himself um, took a very, very different um, view than he had advocated in 1944
0: and in 1948. Well, Ben Steele, we run out of time, although there's a lot more to talk about. Uh, We'll revisit this subject, and I thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me,
0: And again, I've been speaking with Ben Steele, who's Director of International Economics and the historian in residence at the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as the author, most recently, of The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. His latest book is The World That Wasn't, Henry Wallace and the Fate of the American Century. And he has an article at Time, Biden Owes the Country a New Vice President. We're gonna take a brief station break and back look into today's hearings that had the big tech CEOs of Meta X, Snap, TikTok, and Discord grilled by senators with bipartisan outrage. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Bartlett Naylor, the Financial Policy Advocate for Public Citizens Congress Watch Division and the Principal of Capital Strategies Consulting Inc., which works with progressive organizations attempting to reform public policies where corporations play a key role. Formerly, he served as the Chief of Investigations for the United States Senate Banking Committee, where he led probes of the savings and loan crisis, corporate takeovers, and insider trading. And also joining us is Richard Anthony, a big tech accountability advocate with Public Citizen. Welcome to Background Briefing, Bartlett Naylor and Richard Anthony.
3: Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: Well, thank you both. And let me begin with uh, Richard. What did you make of the hearings today before the United States Senate where you had the chief executives of Meta, TikTok, Snap, Discord, and X, formerly known as Twitter, testifying before a blizzard of bipartisan outrage?
3: Yeah, um, I think that sadly uh, the hearing today was an example of more of the same. as We've seen in previous sort of tech CEO meetings any sort of positive movements or bipartisan cooperation uh, regarding sort of real sort of policy initiatives are drowned out by uh, news making sort of incidents or attempts to make uh, headlines uh, as seen with uh, Senator Cotton's berating of TikTok CEO for supposedly being a, you know, a Chinese agent or other sort of incidents like that sort. Um, I do think there is some sort of interesting policy analysis coming out of the hearing. As you mentioned, there's a lot of sort of bipartisan sort of fear around Section 230, which I think is something to keep an eye on in the future in terms of sort of any sort of possible changes. I don't think it's going to happen quite as easily as the bipartisan sort of claims claim to be because if you really dig into the Senator's previous statements on Section 230, while most of them agree that there should be changes to Section 230, they can't really agree on what the changes should be. Um, So that's something to keep an eye out on. And also sort of looking at liability issues in the future. Um, That might be something else to look at. But um, again, it was more of the same sadly today, and uh, I hope in future hearings that there's more of an attempt to focus on the policy of issues rather than sort of the circus antics, as we've seen today.
0: Well, indeed, that was the case. But you can't help agreeing with Senator Kennedy, who claimed that these platforms have become a cesspool of snark. And of course, there were references uh, or examples of, in fact, a Republican congressman's son committed suicide as a result of, of being uh, having nude pictures of him circulate on social media. So let me ask you, Bart, of course, the CEO of X, formerly Twitter, was on the hot seat today along with Zuckerberg and others, but um, not Elon Musk. And uh, yesterday, a Delaware judge voided a $56 billion pay package to the Tesla CEO, Elon Musk ruling that the company's board of directors failed to prove that the compensation plan was fair or show much evidence that they had even negotiated with him. I mean, $56 billion per year has to be a record, doesn't it?
4: Oh, it's not only a record, it's a a record by a hundredfold. Um, And the judge lays this out in fairly clear terms asks in the first question of the opinion was the richest person in the world overpaid Um, and the answer is less and she points out um, uh, this was um, 250 times larger than the median but 33 times larger than the next highest one and that next highest one happens to be musk himself uh, from a 2012 plan this was an eye-popping award that has attracted attention, and in this case, litigation ever since then. And, and it's gratifying that the judge ruled that this is absurd.
0: But who's going to claw back that money?
4: It's a good question. The judge leaves that to trial uh, uh, at the end of the opinion. Um, and it's it's not clear how it gets done, Um But the judge several times says, listen, there's no reason that a person that already has tens of billions of dollars uh, in the company is not incentivized to to work really hard. The additional $50 billion, which is is basically coming from shareholder dilution, is clearly unjustified, not necessary.
0: So just back to today's Senate hearing, uh, Richard Anthony, you mentioned earlier that you didn't think anything came out of it. Is there anything that possibly could be done about drug dealing online, particularly with fentanyl, which teenagers get literally on social media and overdose on? And that's a real epidemic in this country. The CEO of SNAP did agree to endorse the Cooper Davis Act. So any progress there?
3: Yeah, I think that that act, for example, uh, it's an interesting one sort of to follow. Um, and I think seeing senators come out and, and companies come out and endorse I think is pretty major news overall. Uh, I think in regards to sort of the issues of illicit drugs on social media, I do think social media uh, companies sort of need to do their part to ensure the trust and safety of their users. But I do think that there is sort of a passing of the buck here sometimes where politicians sort of find, you know, the next scapegoats, for example. And while tech CEOs definitely need to do much, much more and tech companies need to do much much more than they're doing, I think some of the issues regarding sort of illicit drugs and things like that start at sort of the very basics, which is educating young people, ensuring that they have safe environments to live in, to work in, to go to school in, So I think it's much more than just uh, tech, social media companies uh, laying, blame here. And I do think that there needs to be an overall effort, not just focus on the tech CEOs. Although I think in this instance, they, of course, need to do much more than they're doing already.
0: So do you think that uh, Senator Lindsey Graham accusing the tech CEOs in his opening remarks that you have blood on your hands? Is that appropriate?
3: I don't think that's appropriate in this instance because uh, again, I could say there's so many factors going into someone's uh, sad, you know, mental death or things like that beyond that. Of course, there is a part to play. Everyone has a part to play in this role, but I do think laying the blame of it just at a social media company, it does does a disservice uh, to the overall sort of effect of uh, what's needed to change the drug problem that's currently existing in the United States.
0: And Bart, back to the biggest paycheck in history for the Tesla CEO, Elon Musk, in 2018. Was that $50 billion just for him to spend on his various wives and drug habits? Or was that about him buying Twitter?
4: Well, he used that as I understand it as collateral to buy Twitter, but yes, that was it. And we can go into the details if you like. Um, at the time, it was estimated to be worth 2.6 billion. And what his estimate is he was basically getting 1% of the stock per year. At that time, the Tesla stock was was much less than it is now. Um, in fact, it burgeoned well beyond in reality of 2.6 billion to the 56 billion that is uh, being rescinded but even at 2.6 billion that is a hundred times more than what the next highest paid ceo has ever been paid
0: but i mean he he's almost behaving uh, like apart from being the the most powerful right-wing troll in history he's also trying to be an international statesman Uh, you know he meets with heads of states at the at the un he 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 went recently to Auschwitz to repair some of his the damage to the fact that anti-Semitism proliferates on his platform. So is this in any way going to hold him or rein him in? Because I don't see anybody else reining him in. I mean, he, he actually sided with Russia in the war in Ukraine and helped them enormously, uh, which is hard to understand unless he has this idea that smart, you know, billionaires like him should be ruling the world, just as Russia is ruled by a group of oligarchs regulated by a mafia boss.
4: My lens into Musk's um, mind is what anybody who who reads his tweets or his his exes can see, and that is about a, a juvenile, impulsive, uh, unsophisticated, um, uh, a, a bumbler. And so uh, when you have a billion dollars or in his case, uh, billions of dollars, apparently you feel licensed to to move anywhere. but we can see that um, his management uh, acumen is clearly limited.
0: so Richard Anthony, back to the um today's Senate hearings, what are the chances then since there was focus on section two thirty of the Communications Act that's immunized these platforms? against anything that they uh, publish even though they say they're not publishers and that's the that's came out of course uh, through the during the clinton administration and has basically had really detrimental effects all across the board one of which of course is the newspaper business is going (laughs) newspapers are going out of business because these big tech platforms like meta basically they steal about 14 billion dollars. This is according to a Columbia University research. They steal about 14 billion dollars of product from mainstream media and newspapers, which they get for free, because they basically say, well, you know, we're not responsible for anything on our platform, which of course is what the senators were complaining about today in terms of pornography and cruelty towards children.
3: I think, as I mentioned earlier, that there is bipartisan support to change Section 230 or amend it. I think the issue comes into play as to what needs to be changed. And then there is a vast disagreement between Republicans and Democrats on the committee, on the Judiciary committee, and across sort of the tech policy sort of spectrum, both in the House also, about what those changes should be. Um, there are legitimate sort of free speech sort of reasons to be afraid of dramatically changing section 230 Um, and I think that's something that uh, some senators uh, will have issues with so I do think that there is momentum to do something about section 230 but I do think in regards to uh, finding consensus among the politicians about what those changes should be uh, it may be a bit tougher uh, to find so I don't think there's great great chances of anything happening uh, after this hearing,
0: but in terms of what Senator Graham was saying, accusing the CEOs of having blood on their hands, he wasn't necessarily referring to the lack of moderation on ex-formerly Twitter since Elon Musk took over, which is championing all kinds of right-wing causes to the point, you know, where it tolerates anti-Semitism and, and white supremacy.
3: Yeah, I think one of the more interesting things I saw out of the hearing was sort of the focus on trust and safety. And I do think there is maybe a possibility after this hearing to sort of see some changes on that. For example, as you mentioned, X, uh, according to reports that I've seen, fired about 80% of their engineers that were working on trust and safety when Elon Musk came into power. I think uh, from what I gathered in the hearing, they want to reverse that. But I think there may be some legislation uh, for, that I could see happening to sort of uh, possibly sort of uh, make that sort of a higher standard, for example, in the future. Um, and that's sort of what I got from the hearing today.
0: And back to Bartlett-Naylor, do you think that that's the one thing that might rein in Musk is the, the collapse of X, formerly known as Twitter? and the fact that he overpaid for it, and people are deserting it in droves. But on the other hand, there doesn't see, doesn't seem to be any really workable alternative. Meta came up with another platform which hasn't really taken off. So what's the status in terms of whether or not X, or formerly Twitter, is an albatross for Musk?
4: Well, and it certainly is an albatross, and as we were discussing before, it, it's allowing people to change their view of, of Musk. I think uh, many people who knew about him or who know, knew of him held him in high regard, and he has to understand that, that reputation has gone far south uh, since then. What holds him accountable? Of course, public citizen always believes in in liability and, and, and accountability. Section 230 is, uh, is, a, is a difficult um, issue given uh, how it has has played out, but uh, it, it is true that these questions are worth examining and re-examining, especially as we supercharge the internet with artificial intelligence.
0: Right. Well, just in closing, of course, Tesla's value is not entirely to do with uh, this one person. It got a lot of government subsidies and it has uh, obviously input from engineers, designers, factory workers, etc., So it's not just about the wealth of Tesla is not all about the genius of uh, of Elon Musk.
4: No. Musk, as with so many other so-called superstars, has found a parade and he's standing in front of it and claims to lead it. Um, But Tesla is all about hardworking engineers, designers, factory workers and so forth. He he is a financier. He's charismatic. And he apparently has convinced enough people that he is uh, from some superior planet.
0: Well, Bart and Naila, I thank you for joining us along with uh, Richard Anthony. Thank you both.
4: Thank you. Thank you.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Bartlett Naylor, who's the financial policy advocate for Public Citizens Congress Watch Division and the principal of Capital Strategies Consulting, Inc., which works with progressive organizations attempting to reform public policies where corporations play a key role. Formerly, he served as the chief of investigations for the United States Senate Banking Committee, where he led probes of the savings and loan crisis, corporate takeovers and insider training. And also joining us is Richard Anthony, a big tech accountability advocate with Public Citizen.